This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard. This episode is presented by Solescence, a developer and manufacturer of patented and award-winning environmental protection formulas for beauty brands. Hi, I'm Alicia Yoon. I'm the founder of Peach and Lily. And for me, it's a matter of care. Some people are predisposed to the adrenaline-fueled world of startups, while others have the skills to master the navigation of corporate structures. I'm Kelly Kovac, founder of Beauty Matter. One path is not necessarily easier or better than the other, but they are wildly different. There are some people who have the ability and the personalities to not only comfortably reside in both worlds, but be successful in both worlds. Often these founders find success and build businesses at the intersection of these skill sets, leveraging the discipline and process of big business to add structure to the passion and vision necessary to fuel a startup. Alicia Yoon, the founder and CEO of Peach and Lily, is one of those people. She grew up seeing success as possible, following either path, and has built a business that's at the intersection of both, defining the K-beauty opportunity by translating it for the U.S. market. So Alicia, thank you so much for coming. Thank it's, you for having me. Yeah, you know, it's always fun to have guests on where there's sort of a history. So we actually, for the audience, um, met really sort of early on in your Peach and Lily journey. Yeah. Um, and it's evolved so much and it's been so fun to watch it evolve. <laughs> thank um, you. Because I think you launched in 2012, right? That's right. And I think we met sort of around then. Yeah. Because you had eight sort of ago. eight years ago, right? Because you had sort of Korean beauty was kind of bubbling up and there was obviously an opportunity, but it was way before you became sort of the Korean brand whisperer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think, you know, you've really kind of become the face of Korean beauty for a lot of people in the U.S. market because you you kind of bridged that lost in translation moment that happened both with packaging and language and products. Um, and, you know, you really started from a more traditional sort of corporate background. Mm -hmm. Can you sort of share that kind of jumping off point to kind of going full on into the life of an entrepreneur? Yeah. So I first started off working at Goldman Sachs, and then I was a consultant for a while. In between, I had gone to business school, and I was at the Boston Consulting Group, and well, first, that company is an incredibly supportive company. I loved working there. And I have been thinking about doing something entrepreneurial for about a few years, but actually going back into my like deeper kind of mind, it had always been on my mind for a long, long time since I was very young because my grandfather is a serial entrepreneur. So it was this constant kind of thing I had in my mind. And so when I was at BCG, there was a moment where... I just realized, wow, I can actually pursue my passion as my full-time job. And that moment was actually when I was happenstance talking to a cosmetic chemist from a global beauty brand. And, you know, rewind, you know, back to 1990, 
yeah, 1999. It seems like a totally different world. (laughs) Like, oh my God, 20 years ago, 21 years ago. I had actually started going to skincare school um, in Korea. And I was doing facials nights and weekends, and that was my hobby, my my deep-rooted passion, and actually bringing a lot of Korean beauty products for these facials um, from Korea because I grew up there and my parents were still there. But it was when I talked to this cosmetic chemist, and he really started explaining to me, and it was just like this happenstance conversation. Mm-hmm. Did you know that the science is so much more advanced in a lot of ways, that the formulas are super absorbable and so forth. And if you don't have lab equipment, I could see that the ingredient list is different, the textures are different, and that these products are truly helping people. But seeing that scientific sort of lab data Mm -hmm. is what gave me that moment where the light bulb went off in my head and I said, wait a minute, I'm so passionate about helping people transform their skin after seeing my own eczema riddled skin transform and just like how it looks Mm -hmm. and feels. So if we, if it's like 2012, it's a globalized world. And the fact that these really incredible products and technologies were just not available stateside in a meaningful way, I was like, who doesn't want the best for their skin? And this is just not accessible. So it was actually this moment where I went to HR and I just, it was just that day where it made so much sense. And I just went to HR and said, I want to do this. And they were very supportive, like open door policy back if it doesn't work out, but best of luck to you, which gave me that amazing, amazing. Because it kind of gives you a safety net. Exactly. Like, I'm going to do this, but if it doesn't work out, I just pick up where exactly. I left it was off. a psychological safety That's net. Amazing. Um, and so that was a really kind of big moment. But I think when I really look back, it was kind of a journey to get to that point mm-hmm. where I was able to kind of make that decision in that moment. So oftentimes, I think life is like that, where there is this one critical moment where that watershed decision in your life happens, but actually. The history of your life leads to that moment. Right. It's that kind of that tipping point or like that, that gut instinct, but it's not really a gut instinct. It's informed by all this history. Exactly. And plus, I mean, I think you probably coming from a family of entrepreneurs, there was, you know, I know when. I think my parent, my family still doesn't know what I do because they're not <laughs> entrepreneurs. But when you have a, a sort of a family of entrepreneurs, they're sort of, I guess, probably sort of a comfort in that as well, because you must have used them as kind of a touchstone along the way. Yeah. I mean, my my dad it was an attorney and my mom, you know, was a violinist and then she um, was a stay-at-home mom. And having seen both my dad's career where he has a corporate job and very fulfilled in that mm-hmm. and then having seen my grandfather where he's a serial entrepreneur and also incredibly fulfilled i feel very very fortunate that both options felt like very viable kind of career paths mm-hmm. and in my mind you know it kind of really opened up my eyes where even though they weren't going back and forth as the same person doing that, mm-hmm. somehow in my mind it melded <laughs> as like it's a fluid thing. You right. know, you can kind of start in the corporate world, you can become an entrepreneur or vice versa. And so I do feel very, very fortunate that I had that exposure. Given the kind of the current state of, of indie brands or even the investment, call it appetite for the beauty category, which has 
exploded. Mm-hmm. Um, and and sort of given your background, sort of Goldman Sachs and, and Boston Consulting Group, why did you decide to not sort of raise sort of a pre-seed or seed round and sort of go kind of the the traditional route, perhaps? Yeah. So when I first started teaching the Lee, um, I had the privilege of having so many of my classmates from business school um, had they had become entrepreneurs and they started their businesses, you know, the year we graduated actually mm-hmm. in 2010. And I had waited a couple years in 2012. And so I had friends who were kind of two years ahead. And, you know, they were sharing sort of here's like a list of like great VCs you could talk to. And I actually did talk to them. And, you know, in those conversations, it was like, Actually doing your seed series is a little bit of an easier fundraising kind of hurdle than doing your series A, B, C, D. Right, because you're selling the idea in yourself. Exactly. (laughs) All potential. All Uh, potential. Revenue doesn't matter. (laughs) Exactly. It's a great idea. Okay, let's see where this goes. Great idea. We like you. We'll take a chance. Exactly. The conversations were going really well, and it became very real that one of these potential term sheets could go to a full-blown deal. And I started to really sleep on that concept. Mm -hmm. And increasingly in my gut, I just knew this was not right for our business, not right for me. And it's because ultimately when I thought about the business model, I realized I'm not building a tech platform like Instagram where I have to have all of these users, and then you monetize. Mm -hmm. In some ways, even though it's new innovations and it's a whole new category in an industry that you're really getting into, it's still run in a meat and potatoes type of way. You're creating things or curating things, buying it and then selling it. Mm -hmm. And if that business model isn't sustainable, there probably isn't going to be a business model there in the future. Because ultimately, you know, really marketing to customers, it's only going to get more and more expensive as you, you know, are reaching customers who are harder and harder to reach. And so, you know, I thought to myself, it doesn't feel quite right for me to take on funding to experiment how that's going to play out. I would rather take on funding when I have a solid business model that I know exactly how we're going to use those funds and what that return profile will look like. And then potentially that's like a better time. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, kind of just listen to my intuition And it wasn't easy. You know, it was definitely the first few years of the business was incredibly hard, went from a relatively, you know, very stable jobs, you know, um, a very comfortable living to at one point I've, you know, I had $7 to my name. I'm debating, do I take the subway or eat pizza? Or I'm like almost evicted from my apartment a few times, which doubled as our office. Like times are hard. Yeah. Um, But do you think that, you know, I think I sometimes think that... it's different when when you have funding and when it's sort of your own money. I mean, you know, some founders sort of have those same stories, having sort of raised money. But it is, I think, the mindset is very different when it's when it's your own. Oh, I I think so. I mean, this was like my entire life savings. I had sold a lot of things to try to ensure there was continued liquidity. Um, you're beyond You're all, all in. in, like all in and negatively on, right. you know, like I have nothing more to give. <laughs> it's everything I have. And so um, the feeling is different. Uh, 
you know, failure just becomes not an option. Um, and that really leads to creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, that also, for us, that led to a lot of data-driven uh, outcomes. So, you know, had this mantra saying every single month we have to get smarter. Every single month we have to figure out what worked, what didn't work, and what to do differently. And that really is data-driven. It can't just be like, oh, I think that kind of went well. And so that actually created this rigor in the business to really have a clear understanding of what the insights are because it's very easy to have generic insights like, oh, I think like people just really generally like the cream more. Did they or did you market that on a Sunday when people are opening up emails more? Um, And and so that was something that really became part of our DNA, as well as that resourcefulness and thinking outside the box. Up until a year ago, we actually hadn't hired anybody really from the beauty industry. And that was just happenstance. Mm -hmm. But that's because we were thinking very outside the box in building the business because there wasn't this really... uh, this playbook that we could follow. Mm-hmm. And I also didn't come from, you know, a L'Oreal or SC Louder. So it was just applying, you know, whatever common sense to the business versus... Common sense goes a long way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for sure, were there things that might have been easier if I had known certain things? For sure. But, you know, could common sense also, you know, get you through a lot? You know, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that if I had to lean on one more than the other, you know, any day of the week, I would pick common sense because every business is going to be unique. Um, I also think that in those really early days when it was very, very tough and, you know, for sure there were times when I started doubting why am I living my life like this? Is it Mm -hmm. the right choice? Should I actually bring on a partner? And, you know, I would go back to my grandfather, who was such a mentor of mine. He's 100 years old this year. Oh my God, that's amazing. Still so, so just so insightful, like super with it. Um, And, you know, eight years ago, I mean, he's in his 90s. He has Mm -hmm. his whole life experience to share. And I started talking to him, you know, a lot of my peers are raising funding and, you know, they're just like raising huge amounts of funding, actually. And here I am like super struggling. And, you know, he started actually really reminding me and and it, it really influenced me a lot because he had the track record also to kind of, you know, really be seen as a credible source of advice. Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, look, at the end of the day, these valuations that are just on paper, what does that even mean? Why does that even matter? And if you were to raise all that money today, how would you even use that? Would it be an experiment or would it be like, you know exactly what your business model is and exactly where you're going to lean in Mm -hmm. to like whatever you're investing in? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he kept reassuring me and he also said a few really incredible things. First, he was like, there are no shortcuts in business. You have to treat it like you're climbing a series of staircases and you have to, you can't skip stair like landings. You can't go from the second floor and all of a sudden you're magically on the fifth floor. You have to go to the third floor and then you're like, okay, I'm on the third floor. And you have to have those landings because invariably challenges will come up in your business. And if you didn't kind of build those landings, you will collapse all the way down versus just going from like the 17th floor to taking a step back to the 16th floor. See, he was like, there's no rush. Build a Mm -hmm. sustainable business and don't take the shortcuts. And it was really encouraging. It's so, it makes such sense. I think, you know, I think we're we're sort of in an interesting time now because, you know, with, well, 
with sort of everything that that's happened where sort of you know, venture capital has gone from grow, 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 grow to unit economics, like it what seemed like overnight. Yeah. Um, you know, I think a lot of brands have kind of become, it's almost like a drug, mm-hmm. this like raising round after round after round to keep fueling this growth that's not really, it's like artificially inflated right there's not like a business there right and I think that the you know it's not wise to think that scale just buys you profitability or a sustainable business model and in fact you know scale just brings bigger bills yeah (laughs) or bigger losses if you're losing money with every sale (laughs) that's made and so so then the question to him it became Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm going to do this where we're really just not taking on any institutional funding. And a few years in, we did a small seed series with friends and family, Mm -hmm. and that felt right. And not, you know, and actually at that juncture, we also had various funds Mm -hmm. wanting to infuse a lot more capital, Mm -hmm. and that didn't feel right. So just kind of, you know, took it step by step. And so then, you know, one other conversation I remember that was very um, memorable to me, I had asked him, okay, so... Growing this pretty much organically, and what are some business principles to always keep in mind? And I love these two things he said. He said, first of all, money has eyes. If you're just in it for the money and you're just like doing whatever for money, I mean, money will run away from you. And actually, he was like, it's a way of saying that if you're only doing it for that reason, you don't always make the right decisions because, you know, money can also come with fear or greed and a Mm -hmm. lot of like emotional decisions. Um, And so what is the reason that you're doing this? And always go back to that reason when times are tough. And for me, Mm -hmm. you know, having struggled with my own skin, it really was this passion to help people transform their skin. That was why I was doing facials all nights and weekends. And whenever times get tough, till this day, I will read through DM messages, our customer emails, cards that people mm-hmm. send us. I keep all of it. Um, and I will go back to it. And every day feels like day one. It helps to get through those moments. So I loved that piece of advice. And then number two, he had said, fairness is really important. If you're trying to create partnerships, let's say with other, uh, you know, retailers or vendors or suppliers, and you feel like you got this great deal and, you know, they kind of, you know, are getting getting the short end of the stick, that's never sustainable. Same with your customers. If you feel like you're getting a more than fair margin to keep your business going and you're just kind of, you know, really just spinning the angling on marketing and you know that the value is not really a fair value that you're offering, it's not it's not sustainable. People are smart and eventually that fairness is what keeps a business really, really solid. And if anything, lean on the side of generosity because that is going to have longevity. Mm -hmm. And that was amazing, amazing advice. And so he was like, greed actually can become the undoing. So fairness is a principle to always uphold. And I just, I love that. And that's been something that, you know, Time and time again, whatever contract we're looking at, whatever. And actually, that works the other way, too. If the mm-hmm. other side is not being fair, you feel very empowered to, 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 to negotiate, to push for that fairness. And also, it, it gives you a lens. Like if that partner is really unwilling to come to terms in what seems reasonable and fair, you walk away. 
So, you know, it really becomes a, a, you know, a North Star in a lot of ways. Your grandfather is a very wise man. (laughs) (laughs) I'm biased, but yes, I agree. (laughs) At what point did you sort of realize there was sort of the tipping point where you're like, this is working? And really sort of go from, I mean, I think, you know, when, you, when you're when you an entrepreneur, you're always bootstrapping to, to some extent. But with any business, there's usually an inflection point where you're like, okay, we've got this. And then you sort of focus on what's next and the growth. Yeah, I would say that there were two kind of moments. One moment was more just on a continuous basis. Mm-hmm. I think from the very beginning – we had a lot of signals that showed that there was demand for Korean beauty. Um, And now for the Peach and Lily collection, which is 100% worry-free beauty Mm -hmm. is what we call it. Um, And, you know, that came in a lot of different forms, whether it's things selling out a lot faster than we had ever anticipated to on opening day of our e-commerce site, like completely unable to even pack the orders. Like it was really mind-boggling. And Mm so I think seeing that momentum reassured me that even though it will take a little bit to get your business model to a profitable place, that it, there is potential. So there is like a market fit. There is potential. The timing mm-hmm. is right. So that was important to kind of see throughout the process. And then I would say about three and a half to four years into the business. So about a little more than four years ago mm-hmm. from today was the point where the business from a financial perspective became very, very stable. And then that was like the first time I felt like I'm breathing a little yeah. bit. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, okay. You know, maybe, uh-huh. yeah. Or like maybe t- two and a half years into the mm-hmm. business was the first time I started paying myself anything. That's a big deal. And I was like, oh my God, I'm not just paying the bills and I can like give myself a little bit of a salary. Yeah. That was a big day too. (laughs) Yeah. That's a big deal. Yeah. Um, and you, and you have been profitable, Mm -hmm. which, you know, is I think sort of in this day and age, nothing to be taken for granted. Yeah. Um, and I have to, I have to imagine that you have been approached over sort of the past eight years with, lots of opportunity to take capital. And very recently, you took your first outside capital with Sandbridge, yes. which is a very cool partner. Can you talk <laughs> you. a little bit about the decision to sort of go down that path? And then also what the experience was like? Because I think that a lot of entrepreneurs go down the path without really understanding sort of what it entails, Mm -hmm. you certainly had sort of a little bit of context. So Mm -hmm. I have a feeling you probably knew what you were getting yourself into and you had your husband um, to help you. But um, if you could share that, I think that it would be so helpful to a lot of entrepreneurs. Yeah. Yeah. So Ed, my husband, we work together. I've hijacked his life starting four (laughs) years ago. We met in business school and he's like from the Mm -hmm. biotech industry. And I was like, you should also be doing K-beauty with me. (laughs) So, um, you know, it's actually really incredible to have a partner who's also, you know, just you're 100% aligned in every way. And so we started having um, really great conversations starting a few years ago, actually saying, you know, would it make sense for us to take on outside institutional funding and ultimately, you know, the decision, we couldn't make that in a vacuum where it was just 
us talking about it, it really depended on well, are we are there the right partners out there? Mm-hmm. So the first thing we did was because actually, you didn't need the money. You were profitable. We capital, you were growing, right? So that was yeah, that was another really big uh, luxury or benefit that we had is that we didn't need the capital. And I actually think raising money when you don't need the capital that's usually the best time Absolutely. to do it. Um, and so. You know, we we thought about the specific terms that would make it work for us, and so we kind of put that on a piece of paper. And um, you know, on the top of the list, so there were like financial terms that were important to us, but um, and also you know like governance terms and all all sorts of things like that. But then there was also sort of on the top of the list a fit: is there going to be a hundred percent alignment of of value of vision of strategy um and if those things aren't there you know yeah it's like getting married that's like it's like disastrous there's nothing worse yeah you you can't it's just not going to work if you're not in agreement on the big picture things and so um once we had that clear in our heads then we started having conversations with um various folks. And actually, you know, it was starting kind of a few years ago. And at this point, we're not talking terms with them. We're just getting a sense of these funds and, you know, this, the the partners who are running the funds and what are the values of these funds. So we took our time to do that. And then we had, um, we kept really actually gravitating towards Ken at Sandbridge. And we had known him actually at this point for, for a couple of years before we actually even did the deal. Um, and so, you know, we just were able to kind of find that first most important part. Um, and then it was a pretty, if partners were not amenable to like specific terms, then it would be a no-go. And so, you know, once you have that kind of relationship and you know that alignment is there, you know, in with Ken, the conversation was actually very easy and very uh, efficient because that relationship was there, the trust, the trust was there, the alignment was there, but then also it was a pretty open book conversation. We were like, okay, we know we really respect and like each other and we want to do something, but let's just like talk about the specific terms that's going to work for both parties. And we were just transparent about that and pretty forthcoming. Um, and so that was kind of the process for us. So, you know, Sandbird is also interesting because they're relatively new to beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, so was that appealing to you? Um, because the the other uh, sort of businesses in their portfolio, there's definite sort of adjacencies. Yeah. And I think it's Sandbridge is sort of definitely smart money. Um, and were you looking for someone that was more than just sort of writing a check that yeah. was strategic? Yeah. So to tie into your earlier question, um, we had decided, you know, if we find somebody who fits all of the above, we do want to take on the capital because we were, we, you know, just you're growing so fast. And then it actually feels like the right time to take on funding because you know exactly how much you need and what you're going to do with it. And it's going to work. And so once that decision was made, um, that was kind of the thinking behind it, then it was thinking, okay, you know, provided all of those terms are in alignment, um, what kind of partner would be the best? So the strategic fit was like absolutely no brainer. But then on top of that, loved that Sandbridge is very focused on branding and customer first and building a long lasting brand. And the expertise 
both in the fund and the network around them of true kind of outside the box thinking with branding because it's also just not a beauty focused Mm -hmm. um, company, but just really great brands in general. And, you know, how do you think about building long lasting brands? How do you think about always putting the customer first? That was very, very uh, compelling for us. And so, yeah, that smart value add money is definitely just a strategic partnership beyond just like a check. Um, So what are you going to do with the money? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have it. What are you going to do with it? <laughs> so for us, definitely when it comes to skincare, I think education is everything. Um, and really providing this robust education on all different platforms in ways that people want to consume that content. Um, and it's not just like content for content's sake. Mm-hmm. It's always comes down to our mission, help people transform their skin. That's it. So what content is going to help people do that? Um, How do we make sure that people are engaging with it in a way where they're actually able to digest information, even if they're like cooking something in the meantime? Mm -hmm. Um, And so a lot of investment in that. Um, And also with our community, we're seeing that they're very engaged and loyal. So um, last year, over 65% of our revenue came from repeat purchases. That's amazing. Yeah, that loyalty and the community of consumers just want that brand personified. So more in life, you know, in in kind of non-digital like analog experiences. So definitely investing in that. And then we have actually till to date, even though it's eight years in, we are not international. So we ship internationally from our website, Mm -hmm. but we don't have any partnerships internationally. Mm -hmm. And that was very intentional because we didn't want to grow by doing a little bit everywhere. Mm -hmm. You want to go really deep and do something really, really well. With the funding, we'll be able to explore international plans faster and earlier and really devote, you know, real energy to that in a thoughtful manner. That's exciting. (laughs) Yeah, we're super excited about that. And now here's our trend minute brought to you by big thinkers that aren't afraid to make predictions. I'm Ashley Edwards, and this is your Trend Minute. Let's talk luxury. I read a very interesting article in Business Insider a few days ago, written by a journalist called Dominic Midori Davis on March 3rd. And the headline was that the son of French luxury billionaire Bernard Arnault rejects the word luxury. He says, quote, I don't think price should really come into the equation. Um, So Alexander Arnault, he's the uh, CEO of Ramoa. It's a high-end luggage company. He's son, obviously, of billionaire LVMH CMO Bernard Arnault. And I loved what he said. I love that he said that he is reluctant to use the word luxury when defining his brand because it's more about the fact that luxury has evolved and it's more about consumers looking for brands that match their values versus brands that have a certain badge value. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So from a luxury standpoint, we've seen in the past that it used to be about goods, then it became about uh, experiences, then it became about health and wellness. And now I think we're in a very interesting space from a luxury standpoint where it's about values, it's about virtue signaling, it's about woke signaling, and it's about this idea that moral outrage and values are the new status symbol. 
And I think it's interesting for folks that reject that idea that it's not about badge value anymore from a luxury standpoint, because I think that it is. And the reason why is that the human nature, human condition will tell us that humans will always have a desire for status, for luxury, for prestige, for power. And goods are a very powerful way to signal that to other people. Now, I think it's interesting that luxury brands really have the role of offering a value exchange with consumers based on values, based on morals, based on ethics and principles, and less on simple simple badge value. But, you know, virtue signaling is a badge. Uh, being woke is a badge. And that's currently the state that we are in from a, from a luxury standpoint. And I think it'll be really interesting to see how this evolves as we progress through 2020. That's your Trend Minute. I'm Ashley Edwards. I'm a consultant with LPK Brands in Cincinnati, Ohio. And you can find me on LinkedIn under Ashley Edwards. Thanks so much. Be a beauty brand with a brain. This is a trend that we've seen growing at a rapid pace over the years. Proving your credibility with science is now a must. Solescence is a developer and manufacturer of patented and award-winning environmental protection formulas. Their mission is to enhance human well-being through the creation of extraordinary products that provide experiences to amplify the health and beauty of the skin. They offer brands custom product development and turnkey solutions that all feature innovative mineral, non-nanotechnology that makes zinc oxide work for everyone and gives brands the newest innovation in skin health. For more information, visit solescent.com. That's S-O-L-E-S-E-N-C-E.com. I always find it interesting when husbands and wives work together. Yes. Cuz I throughout <laughs> my career, I have I've worked for couples. Sometimes it works and sometimes it really doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> for anyone. <laughs> um, but you know, I actually have recruited my husband to help with our podcast. Um, So it's been fun working with him. But um, what is it like working with your husband? And, you know, it has to be really amazing to spend a lot of time with someone you and build a business with someone you kind of trust completely. But you're with each other 24-7. Oh, all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I love it. I absolutely love it. It doesn't mean it's not challenging. Mm -hmm. It's now year four of working together. Year one was definitely like the boot camp of relationships and communication for Mm -hmm. us, which now, you know, having gone through that, we're like, we can have like, I don't know, any challenge thrown our way and we would like get through it because we just communicate in Mm -hmm. such an effective way. And so the first year was really kind of this investment year on, and we actually went into it eyes pretty wide open. Mm -hmm. Um, When I first asked him to uh, join Peach and Lily, he was very resistant. Um, He was like, I love spending time with you, but it is not easy to work together as a couple. And it can really derail like a lot of things in the relationship. And so we actually talked very extensively before even deciding to go in. And we had some, you know, specific, almost like rules we put into place Mm -hmm. where we were like, okay, we don't really fight. But probably when we work together, we're going to start feeling so agitated with each other. And when you're feeling that way, you don't bring up issues then. 
Mm-hmm. Another thing was um, we're going to have very different working styles and communication methods. It doesn't mean one person is right or the other. Did you know how each other worked? No. At that point? No. Okay. Yeah. We only knew. So you were alert. You were, yeah. you were getting to know each other on a whole other level. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, I didn't know you, you had this whole other work voice also. And like, I didn't That's kind <laughs> of interesting. And he was like, you're so laid back in everything else. I did not realize that like at work, you're like incredibly meticulous about every last detail. I'm like, oh, yes, every last detail matters when everything is for, you know, like everything touches your customer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, he cares so deeply about our customer, too. But it's just the way I manifest it is different than the way he does. And so it was a lot of learning. Um, But in some senses, it was challenging, but it was actually so fulfilling to get to know each other on this whole other level. Mm -hmm. And then you see the output and the reward of like, wow, when we collaborate in this way. And so now it's like four years in, so it's much more sort of on auto. Mm -hmm. Um, And another thing was just also finding healthy ways to allow each other to turn off Mm -hmm. the work brain um, when we're home, but also not limiting it because part of the benefit of living together also is that sometimes you want to talk about something that you mold over. Sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, oh my gosh, I thought of an idea and Mm -hmm. here's a solution. And, you know, sometimes you just have to indulge those moments too. So we didn't have like these rigid rules, but more like fun things on like how we can help each other, you know, kind of unwind a little bit. So it was a lot, a lot of effort went into it. Um, but I can't imagine like not having him as a partner now. And, you know, I think it's enhanced both the like both work and personally, like everything mm-hmm. got enhanced. So, mm-hmm. yeah. But yeah, a lot of work went into it. <laughs> That's, it's very cool. I mean, I I'm sure your husband never really thought he'd be in the beauty industry, the Korean beauty industry. <laughs> him, no way. Because <laughs> I've met your husband. <laughs> Um, You know, I think that there's sort of this interesting moment in the beauty industry where indie beauty brands have been elevated to kind of this, I don't know, I think there's this almost mystique that I've heard it so many times, it's never been easier to launch a beauty brand. And I think I immediately roll my eyes and I'm just like, I've been doing this for 25 years and to me, it's never been harder. Like sure, the barriers to entry are lower and you can throw up a website, you can put some stuff in a jar, but my God, is it competitive? And then you sort of take the the, the venture money. And they kind of have their finger on the scale because when I sort of started eons ago, you could self-finance a brand. So, you know, I started at Bliss in 96, Mm -hmm. sold it. um, Marcia sold it to LVMH in 99. It was totally self-financed. There wasn't even a bank loan. You can't do that now. Yeah. Um, Because even brands that are in Sephora that are kind of indie beauty brands, you know, They've raised fifteen million dollars mm-hmm. in venture capital. That's 
that's real money. Yeah. Like, how do you compete with that? Mm -hmm. And so I think the idea of kind of what an indie brand even means Mm -hmm. has changed. Mm -hmm. And I think there's everyone is sort of like has bought into this indie beauty myth that, you know, if you build it, they will come with Mm -hmm. a billion dollar check. Mm -hmm. So not true. You know, (laughs) um, you know, from your experience, because I think, you know, you've been at it for eight years Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't happen overnight. What advice would you give to our listeners that are early on in their path or thinking about launching a beauty brand? Like, what do you wish someone had told you? So, yeah, I completely agree with you. It is not easy. There's a lot of misinformation, right? It's not easy. (laughs) It's really hard. It's really, really hard. I do think, sure, um, you know, manufacturing something and now there's like some factories who will do very small minimum order quantities. um, And now you can do a social media account for free and just start that up. Yeah, Are those things easy? Yes. However, Number one, as you mentioned, it is really, really competitive. Number two, um, it's still building a business and building a business is not easy. And there's a lot that goes into it. And I would say that, um, you know, I had a lot of advice being like, it's really hard. And I envisioned that and it was harder than that even. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't realize it was like, this hard. Like I'm a very, very sort of like even keeled person. And there are times, there were days where I was like, I just had like 37 different emotional fluctuations and all with like a tinge of stress, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like there are times like you're just like, wow, this is super, super hard. And so, and like every challenge can come up. Like we've had things like huge cargo ships of our goods, like stuck somewhere And then what do you do? You're like, that is all of my capital tied up in inventory that we need for this retail account. Mm -hmm. But like, who's going to care? You need to get those goods somehow. So now you're placing a duplicate order. I mean, these things just come up. This is regular business. And so... um, I think people don't realize how complicated the beauty supply chain is. Yes. Yes. It's like you... You know, you plan your production run and all of a sudden the cap doesn't ship. But everything else does and it's sitting in your warehouse and the time is clicking (laughs) and then all of a sudden they want their money and you haven't done your production run yet. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. There's just like a lot of coordination. A lot of the supply chain has to work together seamlessly um, and it just takes that one week link and your supply chain doesn't have a complete good. Um, And so... I would say, you know, go into it eyes wide open. It's not, there's easier things to do in life if you're more just thinking it's going to be a lifestyle business or I'm just doing it to, you know, just because, like, don't have another reason be the reason for this. Like, oh, I just don't like my job anymore. Or like, I don't want to be in the corporate world anymore Um, because it's not easier. Like some of those issues, those are real issues too, but those Mm -hmm. struggles, um, Uh, For me personally, they paled in comparison to like the struggles of building a business. And so, you know, for the start the business for the right reason, which would be just you're so, so passionate about both wanting to do the specific idea, but also wanting to be an entrepreneur. Like for me, you know, it was 
grueling and super hard, and it still is, but something about being able to go through that and push myself and create that and watch my team grow and watch the team accomplish amazing things. And, you know, everyone has an entrepreneurial mindset on the team. Like that is fulfilling. Um, and if that's not that exciting, like envision it, if that's not that exciting for you, um, it, it's going to get pretty old pretty fast. And so, yeah, that passion for both entrepreneurship, but also the idea. It seems like, um, part of kind of what's happening now um, with brands scaling really fast and taking a lot of money. Like founders are under a tremendous amount of of pressure. And, you know, we've seen sort of the very public meltdowns of people, which is, I mean, it is heartbreaking to watch. Um, you know, I think that I think the next incarnation of sort of founders and and um, beauty businesses is really building is really building environments that represent what we talk about. So like healthy environments where the the founder is taking care of themselves because if the founder doesn't take care of themselves, they can't take care of the team. They can't take it's it's a cascade effect. Mm -hmm. Um how have you sort of kept that balance? Mm -hmm. Because you do seem very sort of even keel. Um, <laughs> and you've had a team that's been with you for a while. So mm -hmm. that speaks to sort of the culture that you've built. But like, how did you deal with that sort of constant pressure yeah. of being a founder? I would say that the first few years, honestly, it was really hard. It was really, really incredibly challenging hours also because Asia, Asia is involved. Right. So there's like these late night calls and it was just, it was incredibly hard. And I think that the first few years of the business, especially, it's actually almost, I would say, impossible to have a semblance of like balance. So what I would say is that what helped me during that time is to, and which is actually how I think about my life now too, is instead of thinking about things in terms of work-life balance, I really love the framework of work-life harmony. And because work-life balance pretty much presupposes that work is bad and life is good and you want to limit the work and do more of life. But in reality, we don't compartmentalize, I think, that well as people. And if your work is terrible and you don't like it, even if you're working nine to three life just isn't good. Mm -hmm. And then if your personal life, like everything outside of work, there's something terrible going on and work is fantastic. Still, when you go to work, you're not feeling great. So that work-life harmony is all about, you know, we're just one whole person living our life. And, you know, it's not this divide of like, how many hours are you working, but more, are you fulfilled in all areas of your life? And really zooming in on that and addressing that head on. So for example, if there is, um, you know, some sort of tension I feel with someone on my team, even if I love what I'm doing, that's not going to feel great. And then that, even if it's a nine to five day, that's not going to feel great. So just running to the problem and saying, okay, what is the issue? We should talk about this, right? Or, you know, if something is happening at home and I really need to be there to address it and, you know, there was like, you know, if like my parents aren't feeling great, you know, just being like, okay, you know what? 
I'm going to like lean into that and like really go home and see what's going on and just help them get through something challenging. I'm making this example completely up, but you know, (laughs) just really, really dealing with that and just, you know, and, and so that it's a very fluid thing where it's not about nine to five, you know, and it's more about where in your whole life does a harmony feel off because that's going to affect the whole day. It's a very Asian approach to it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that's how I think about it. And I think that that actually brings me a lot of joy because if I were to think about it in like just like a sheer hours perspective, I think it would actually be so depressing because, you know, I'm like, just counting the hours until it's five o'clock then. Right. You know, and that's not like, that's not fulfilling. Um, so that's something that I think about a lot, actually. Um, and I actually talk to my parents about this a lot, too, because they see how hard I'm working. And I tell them, yeah, but I'm so fulfilled because everything in my life is really good right now. And, you know, having said all that, I do think it is important to ensure that um, you know, to always keep a mindset of it's a marathon. Mm-hmm. It's not a sprint. And so, you know, let's just make sure that we're thinking a little bit longer term, right? And even right now with coronavirus, you know, obviously everywhere, like in the news and impacting businesses in a real way, one approach could be more like it's a sprint. Oh my gosh, like, are we going to make this quarter's numbers? Another approach is Let's look long term, not like 10 years out, but let's look a year out, right? And um, if things are impacted temporarily, that's okay. We're going to get through it. So, you know, just having that perspective, taking a step back, having that perspective, I think helps a lot versus um, leaning into the panic. (laughs) Exactly. I love this Korean phrase that my mom says a Mm -hmm. lot, which is having a lot of... um, having a lot of room in your heart. You just have to kind of have like a very big heart, not like generous big heart, like, Mm -hmm. you know, that too, great, but more like just don't really be so like worried about anything. You know, you just let your heart have like a lot of room and then you make better decisions. Mm -hmm. And so it's like so funny. I talked to her, you know, a few times a week mm-hmm. and she's always like yeah you know how are you having like a big heart just you know just like you don't have to worry about anything mm-hmm. and it's incredibly calming um just to kind of be like yeah you know just taking a step back and at the worst kind of crisis moments in the mm-hmm. business i always lean on that piece of advice right one last question if you could give a fellow entrepreneur one piece of advice that you think would fundamentally change their business, what would it be? I mean, I guess I go back to just that advice from my grandfather on building those landings in between each staircase because we're not perfect. Nobody is. Um, I'm not, you know, my team isn't. um, And that's okay because when you're building those landings and you know, you made a mistake, you can go down one floor and it is not the end of the world. And then you just build the landing the other way. Mm -hmm. Um, And the mistakes could be lots of different forms of mistakes, you know, whether it's a business decision or 
even a hiring decision, anything, mm-hmm. anything can happen um, that, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, and that's okay. And so um, just having that, you know, it's, it's a marathon. And so let's just, you know, make sure as long as we're, for the most part, there's a trajectory of you're going up the stairs mm-hmm. and you're just, you know, even yeah. on some floors, you know, he was like, let's say from the first floor to the 10th floor, you jogged up. And then from the 10th floor to the 15th floor, you became tired. So you're kind of crawling up. That's okay. You know, take your time. Right. Um, so I think, yeah, that really, the more I think about it, it was a very profound message and it was very applicable in a wide number of instances with the business. So that would be something that I, yeah, I'd love to I, share. I am in love with that story. <laughs> I've actually, I've told it to a number of people because oh, I, I was just that. like, it makes so much sense. I think, you know, I, I, you know, I see a lot of business plans and talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and some of them are just so convoluted. Yeah. Um, um So I'm like, I love that sort of common sense sort of approach. So how can people sort of get in touch with you? Yeah. So you can definitely DM us at Peach and Lily, or you can email us hello at peachandlily.com. And definitely, you know, we'll see all those emails. So great way to reach us. Perfect. Well, thank you for joining us. I am so excited to sort of see where peach and lily is gonna go oh thank you and thank you so So much for having having me yeah this was awesome for alicia it's a matter of care when founders talk about building data-driven businesses it's often done at the expense of the people behind the data points the ability to add context to the data that allows for the refinement of experience and the deepening of the consumer connection is an art form This humanistic perspective of data is powerful. Don't let the pretty packaging fool you. Everything about Peach and Lily is considered. Alicia built the business following her entrepreneurial grandfather's method of building one staircase at a time. Once you reach the landing, you start building the next staircase, and so on. While this is the antithesis of the venture-fueled competitors who focused on growth at all costs, It allowed Alicia to prove her concept and build a profitable business on her own terms. Alicia has created the blueprint for compassionate entrepreneurship and is proof that beauty and brains are not mutually exclusive. So in the end, it's a matter of care. I'm Kelly Kovac. See you next time. Hi, I'm Alicia Yoon. What matters to me is care. Everything centers around a deep care for our customers, and that informs both how and what we do throughout our entire organization. So yes, it's all about care. It's a Matter Of is a production of Beauty Matter LLC, copyright 2020. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com and follow us on social media at Beauty Matter Official. This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard.